hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with and So welcome back uh, to the next episode of Just Law. I'm here with my co-host, Leah Silverman. And we're very fortunate today to have on uh, both Professors McMurrow and Professor Hashimoto, uh, both professors at BC Law, to talk about COVID-19 and, uh, you know, just a lot of the really novel legal issues that are kind of arising out of uh, everything that's been going on for the last year. And I mean, just recently, within the last few days, we've you know hit the one-year anniversary. And so we're just going to kind of take a look at, uh, you know, really all the issues of, you know, which there are many and you know, some of the legal dimensions uh, of a lot of these, a lot of what's been going on in terms of, you know, liability and insurance and, and just all the, you know, sort of, sort of issues that have kind of arisen that the courts are dealing with and have had uh, to relatively recently deal with and trying to, you know, navigate our way uh, out of the pandemic. So uh, Professor Hashimoto, uh, he focuses on the interface of law, science, and medicine, especially in the areas of healthcare policy and the role of scientific evidence in the courtroom. Uh, educated as both an attorney and physician, he teaches torts, environmental litigation, healthcare law, and evidence. Uh, professor McMurrow, uh, my current torts professor, currently serves as the Associate Dean of Experiential Learning and Global Engagement at BC Law. Uh, she teaches torts, professional responsibility in the, in, uh, and in the law school semester and practice externship program. And her scholarship is primarily in the area of professional responsibility and legal ethics. Uh, professors, thank, uh, thanks to both of you for coming on today. Yes, thank you so much. I'd also like to point out Professor McMurrow was my torts professor as well. So it's nice to see her here two years later. Um, but Professor McMurrow and Professor Hashimoto, do you want to kind of introduce yourself to our audience and talk about your work and your experience in this area? Well, so um, as first of all, great to see my tort students here engaged so deeply in these issues. As Associate Dean for Experiential Learning, last summer, uh, when we began to see the fallout from COVID, we began to see our students not having experiences and the, we knew that there was a rise in the needs of low-income clients. Uh, our clinics at BC Law created the uh, COVID Relief Legal Services. Leah was involved in that. Thank you yes. so much. Uh, we would end up having 47 students working 20 to 40 hours a week doing a range of projects. Some of them were direct client services helping in teams of two with uh, the payer political asylum. Um, immigration representation project, uh, uh, folks who were um, detained in detention, trying to get them out on habeas. We had a team of eight students working on um, advising individuals how to navigate uh, unemployment. That was under the supervision of Professor Minuskin and Professor Rivera from the clinics. We had a small group working on um, debt issues and they would do community education. We had some, some doing prison discipline just because there was a need for that work. Then a lot of research with outside groups um, and often dealing with the, uh, the pressure that COVID was putting on a lot of groups like environmental groups, they could see ahead that the tremendous social expense of dealing with COVID could have a serious negative impact on some of the environmental priorities that they were trying to pursue. So. Um, just it, it, the ripple effect of COVID was just profound. And we could see that even just scratching the surface as we created COVID relief legal services. Now that's not about lawsuits about COVID so much as it is about the legal um, fallout and the impact of COVID is having on all sectors of society and therefore all sectors of legal services. Yeah, well, I think that's very important to recognize. I was part of that 
clinic this past summer and I worked with one of the environmental groups and something that they saw was the lack of support for we worked with water and different water systems and water infrastructure and how that was kind of put on the back burner because COVID was such a such a you know present issue but people were still not getting clean water at prices that they could afford so it was um, definitely a very interesting experience. And Professor Hashimoto, do you want to talk about your experience in the area? Sure. You know, my I'm coming at it from a couple of different perspectives. From a legal perspective, I'm very interested in looking at it from a tort liability and scientific evidence perspective. Um, I'm also a physician, and my medical specialty is occupational and environmental medicine, which looks at the impact of environments, especially workplaces on health. Um, and I've, I've been very interested in issues involving public health more generally. Um, so my work is, is empirical in the sense, especially of looking at organizational policies and their impact on health in workplaces, and in particular, my interest um, is in the healthcare workplace. Um, and I'm responsible for the, uh, the workers, the employees at the Mass General Brigham system, which has you know, at this point some 80,000 employees um, in the impact of COVID and COVID-related policy, COVID -related policies you know, on, on their workplace health. Excellent. Uh, well, you know, it's really great to have you both on. And I guess, you know, where we could start is sort of an area which, uh, you know, you both alluded to, and it's, I think, something, um, you know, both of you could speak to. And it was really sort of the, the genesis of, of the idea for doing um, this episode was something I was sort of thinking about uh, in the last few weeks was, uh, you know, the, the, the tort issue, you know, negligence, the spread of COVID, mask wearing, um, you know, what happens when somebody sues somebody for allegedly giving them COVID, maybe their mask wasn't on tight enough, and just really the, the standard of evidence um, that, that courts will use in these cases when it comes to, uh, you know, COVID and, and COVID issues and really trying to litigate something that's, uh, you know, in, in invisible and microscopic and something that, you know, the, the legal system, at least perhaps not since, you know, the, the early 1900s, since the last pandemic, uh, has had to deal with. And I know, you know, we were a year into this now. Um, so I guess what, what, what are really the, the, the issues, the novel uh, issues that courts are grappling with in, in, in these, types of, these types of cases? Dean, do you want to go first or should I? <laughs> Why don't you go first and I'll go second. I think that's a good natural order. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But one of the, I just uh, step back and recognize that the early lawsuits on COVID were not tort related. Like probably 20% of all the lawsuits in 2020, according to an ABA survey, were actually the single biggest issue addressed were contract issues of businesses trying to seek um, uh, business interruption insurance. Um, there are a lot of related employment issues about family medical leave and intersection of workers' comp. So I think the expectation initially was, oh, we're going to be overrun by these tort suits. Uh, so point one is there's not as many tort suits being brought and not as many successfully brought as might have been anticipated. And probably because of some of the barriers that we can immediately recognize. Um, and one of the big barriers is that for those of you who've taken torts for like a negligence action, you know you have to have a breach of a duty that causes damage. And one, um, one category, the causation issues are incredibly complicated in a typical case. Like, um, now they're not 
as perhaps they're probably easier to address in very confined um, in environments. So there are some early, there have been some lawsuits by cruise ships and by nursing homes. You can envision those are enclosed environments which control who comes in and out, but still involve some movement of people in and out. Um, so we have those, and, but the casual environments, lawsuits involving restaurants um, and others, uh, locations, you haven't seen a um, significant negligence claims claiming the that they um, that there was a spread of COVID. That's something that that defendant did cause COVID in part because COVID um, proving causation. How do I know I got it there versus any other place? And that's where really it turned it over to uh, deans, even in controlled environments like nursing homes. Let's assume we can and and. Um, cruciates assume we can prove breach of duty, which is that's, not, you know, that's a generous assumption right now. We because we we're, they have to act like the reasonable, prudent person in the same or similar circumstance based on the info they had in that moment um, and what they knew or should have known back in say February, March, April, uh, in a fast-moving environment of information. So let's assume breach of duty that the causation, I would predict, even in those tight environments, and so let's assume somebody got COVID and, and a nursing home passed away, then that's, I, there's a general sense is there's going to be a lot of complex expert witness testimony, and that really is Dean's um, uh, expertise. Is it well, I agree with Judy that, you know, as you'll find gen more generally, tort law is a very poor public health tool. Um, and certainly, you know, because of breach of duty issues as well as causality issues, it's generally pretty hard, you know, to establish that a defendant has breached a duty or has a duty at all, um, and that there is proximate cause um, as well as but for cause. There are there are certain circumstances, however, that it does come up, as as Professor McMorrow points out. Um, you know, households is an example of where the risk is so high. If you have a member who's infected in your household, the risk is very high, as, as is true on cruise ships and nursing homes. Where we might, where we are seeing some lawsuits is in the area of workers' compensation. That is, you know, we, we have uh, the, the first um, major tort reform and the most lasting tort reform has been workers' compensation, where states have set up, you know, their own system their own tort systems in which there is no requirement of showing duty or breach of duty. There still is the requirement of showing causation, however, um, and, and so that does remain, um, that can remain an important issue. The, the point being is that when we think of causality with respect to COVID, it's really best look at, looked at from an epidemiological public health perspective which is based upon degree of risk, which does not translate very well in terms of but-for cause or, or proximate cause. Uh, because, you know, in terms of exposure, any exposure, unless it's a rather unusual circumstance again, um, it's, it's hard to meet that more likely than not, than not requirement. I, I suspect that there'll be very little outside of workers' comp, very little successful litigation, um, except in the, you know, um, because of these problems. What's interesting, as Professor McMorrow points out, is that the better public health <coughs> approaches to this problem really are built in contract law. 
And so, for example, um, at the Mass General Brigham, this healthcare system that I work in, um, we, de we developed in the early going what we call COVID pay, where any employee who develops a COVID infection is entitled to pay as long as they appropriately test and they stay out of work appropriately. And this contractual approach has, has been very successful um, in, you know, in terms of making employees feel that they're protected and supported. What's also interesting um, is, is the lack of worker comp suits as a result of that. You know, in an employee population of 80,000, we have eight worker comp claims that are presently being considered. In contrast to the state, the Massachusetts state, which has over 5,000 worker comp claims within healthcare systems. The Yale Medical Center, for example, has 6,000 worker comp claims. And so by relying upon contract law, employment law, and basically giving workers the benefit of a doubt and encouraging them to stay out of work, which is in the interest of the hospital if they're infected, it, it was sort of a way of creating a private system um, you know, that helps to compensate and avoids tort li liability. That's a really interesting, Dean, and one can envision um, what, uh, interesting um, policy discussions like nursing homes where you have generally low wage workers who if they do get COVID and have to stay out for two weeks and then simply don't get paid, it's such a burden on their family. And that it causes people might structural incentives to like not get tested or just muddle through. And um, is one of the questions is uh, say, Mass General did it through private um, agreement with their employees, but the question um, is we're, we're nowhere near able to think about it now, but might we eventually be having um, policies that apply to out workplaces in settings like this to say um, every workplace of a certain size ought to have policies like this? That's right, or especially those workplaces in which there is a vulnerability, you know, and there's a public health need to get tested and stay out of work. You know, um, those workers who are working remotely, you could argue, don't need to have that kind of incentive, you know, because they, there's not the same sort of public health concern. But I, I agree um, that this sort of private contractual approach could have larger implications. And, you know, if we just return to the uh, to the tort issue for a second, I know, you know, you, you've said that, I think we've heard both that, um, you know, the, the, these types of cases are not particularly uh, prevalent thus far. And it's also, you know, sort of a poor uh, you know, tool to try to, uh, you know, kind of manage the, 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 the issue. But I, I guess the question is what kind, you know, like, let's say, because, you know, the, these cases are, uh, you know, somewhat inevitable. I mean, we've had all kinds of reports in the news of, you know, uh, parties and then places where people are, you know, through contact tracing and otherwise, uh, you know, you, you find that not everybody uh, follows all of the, the rules. And we do know for a fact that if you're not wearing masks and you're not social distancing and you're not doing what you're supposed to, uh, you know, you, you will spread COVID. So like, let's say a, a court had a case like this, you know, in front of it where somebody, I don't know, is, is, a, is a roommate or lives in an apartment building or, you know, somehow uh, is, is exposed to COVID in a way that had people been following, you know, but for, as we might say, people uh, not following uh, the, the law or the, you know, sort of the health healthcare guidance that's out there. Uh, that wouldn't have happened. So what kind of standard of evidence would a court look at? Should it take up uh, a case like this and trying to figure out, you know, risk and liability and negligence and exactly how you, you figure out the causation for something you, you can't even see? You know, maybe I should speak to that because it involves contact tracing, you know, which is an area that, that I'm very familiar with, both 
sort of in public as well as sort of within hospital systems. Public, you know, um, contact tracing is this tracing, which basically is, is, it's a very, it's a rather rigid public health system, which is based upon CDC criteria in which in order to find um, an issue in terms of exposure, you need to be exposed for a minimum of 15 minutes um, with face-to-face -face exposure um, within hospital systems, which have surgical masks, which are much more effective than cloth masks in the public. Um, it involves a showing that there is a breach of this personal protective equipment, including, including masking. Um, in the public, there isn't such a requirement just because the, the mask quality is not as high as in the hospital. The difficulty of, of, of depending upon exposure tracing is that it is, it is focused on identifying only one factor. It doesn't focus on, on identifying other risk factors, um, and in particular, household exposures. That is, you know, the risk that is increased because a member of your household is infected is so much higher than any positive exposure tracings that, you know, public health experts would agree that, you know, that would be, you know, the more likely cause, no matter what the exposure tracing results are. Assuming that there is no household exposure, you've only identified one facet of exposure. Let's say, you know, contact tracing based on the fact that you sat next to someone in a restaurant. It focuses only on that exposure and doesn't focus on exposures outside of that. And so that's the limit of that scientific evidence is its very narrow focus. I'm very familiar with this just because we face the same problem within hospitals and exposure tracing within hospitals, which is much more intense much more exacting, but it's only able to identify a relative handful of possibilities. Again, it's, it's not definite because one does, can, does not effectively rule out other exposure causes. And so again, that is the problem, is sort of the lack of having comprehensive information and being able to assess total risk rather than simply focusing on the positive results that you have from a single contact tracing. And so Dean, like in terms of if there were ever litigation, let's, let's identify the huge barriers to litigation in say a context like this, that somebody was went you know, to parties and refused to wear their mask, was indifferent. And somebody, first you have to have somebody who actually gets sick, right? You need damages, unless you're trying to do an um, intentional or reckless infliction of emotional distress, which has own hurdles. Somebody gets sick and the damages first have to be high enough that a lawyer would actually take it. And then the next piece is that you have to have a defendant who actually has money available to compensate if you want um, for the vast majority of these suits to go forward. So like most of those college students are just essentially judgment proof, no matter how egregious their conduct. They're, um, it's probably not going to be, we're not going to see a lot of lawsuits um, by that because lawyers will screen them out for economic reasons. So let's assume you get That's through that. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Just on those two issues, Judy, we know that in 40 to 50% of cases, the infection is the people who are infected are asymptomatic. They're totally without symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so it would be hard to show damages. Mm -hmm. And on the second issue, we know 
But the other large risk factor besides household exposure involves low wage communities. And so if you live in Brockton, if you, if you live in, in, in towns in which wages are low, the chances are high that it's from that general community exposure rather than any individual exposure identified by contact tracing. So that where so if, uh, if Dean talks about the the sort of epidemiological or the medical approach, I think if, if you ever got through the initial hurdles and you actually got into a lawsuit, that while the medical the, the contact tracing can only focus on a single factor, if I were a defendant, a lawyer, a lawyer for the defendant, I would then be doing all this discovery and, and talking, take a deposition of our um, plaintiff here and identify all the other things that plaintiff had done and all the other places where they'd gone and not only where they'd gone, where people in their household had gone or their, if, if we don't have household, others. And if you don't have household, all it tells us is we don't have known household. Um, I'd be the, be the defendant's job to, to develop all those other risk factors, which is going to then truly muddy the water on the cause and fact. Great. Uh, and another uh, question is going off of something uh, Professor McMurrow said. I think it's something that, uh, you know, you're uh, sort of familiar with from, you know, a, a lot of our conversations. And it's been really, I think, one of the most, um, you know, uh, sort of heart-rending uh, aspects of this whole pandemic has been what's going on in nursing homes. I mean, I know we're all familiar with, uh, you know, what's going on, you know, in, in, in New York State, but really across the country and around the world. You know, you have an environment where, you know, we have the most, uh, you know, vulnerable, uh, you know, patients, most vulnerable, vulnerable sort of aspects of our, of our population. At the same time, you have folks living in, in close quarters, indoor, I mean, just all of the ingredients for, uh, you know, having a, having a serious issue. I mean, you have not only, you know, the, the, the health factors, as, as I alluded to, and I'm sure there's, uh, you know, much more there, but you have at the same time, uh, you know, especially earlier on in the pandemic, you know, from a legal and, and policy perspective, I mean, it's kind of been the wild west in some of these places. I mean, I have relatives of mine who are, who are older, who in uh, you know, some of these nursing homes and in, and in terms of figuring out what's the guidance, what's the regulation, what are we supposed to do? What's the standard of care? How distant can you be? We don't have, you know, it's just been uh, chaos. It's been awful. Um, and so I, I was just wondering if either of you could you know, sort of speak to, you know, the, the environment, both, I guess, in Professor Hashimoto's case, from a healthcare perspective in the nursing homes, but also, you know, legally in terms of, you know, policy and healthcare authorities, um, you know, like we saw a year ago right now, I mean, uh, what was going on in some of these places was just absolutely devastating. And so if you could just speak to that dimension of, of the problem in particular. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to talk about that. I think that that is one instance where the, you know, where there will be some litigation, you know, consistent with what Professor McMurrow said earlier in terms of, a, you know, a sort of a distinct identifiable source. Although there will still be the the issue of deep pockets and the issue of, you know, external exposures in terms of risk. A, a difficulty with nursing homes um, during the COVID pandemic. Is the, is the constantly changing standards of care. It's hard for us to remember, but if you go back to a year ago, we didn't understand uh, this coronavirus very well. And it didn't become apparent until various points in time that various interventions would be helpful. And so it even took a while, for example, to establish the CDC standards around social distancing, the standards of, of requiring universal masking of both, of both workers as well as patients. And then the additional standard, 
in terms of doing medical surveillance on a weekly basis if there are any clusters. Um, and so the, the constantly changing standards of care, you know, have placed a heavy burden on nursing homes. I have to say, at least within what I've seen in this state, the state of Massachusetts, that although initially there was a large problem because nursing home environments are in fact ideal for the coronavirus in terms of, of the lack of, you know, of, of the lack of, of uh, distancing requirements as well as the lack of masking, the problem was very quickly handled through state orders. Um, and so there, there might be some initial liability with the debate over, you know, what were the standards of care? Um, but in terms of the success of the state of regulating this particular environment through state orders is impressive. Again, you know, by imposing regulations consistent with this evolving standard of care. It's interesting that you talk about the changing policies in the beginning because I was home with my family in New York for the first few months and the mask mandate was weeks ahead of here and I came back to Boston to take my finals and be kind of alone in my apartment not that my family wasn't wonderful just a bit distracting and there was no mask mandate yet and it was crazy to me coming from New York to going here and seeing people just walking around their face free um it really as things change, the public perception also changes as to what is that reasonable person standard. Exactly, you know, the, the CDC um, standards along with the state orders, even though you have sort of this national guidance with CDC, they were basically sort of enforced through state orders. And so different states did different things, especially with things like masking. And unfortunately, things like masking, public masking, um, have really sort of turned into politics, which is the worst possible thing for a public health measure to do. But that was one of that is one of the unfortunate things that has happened during this pandemic, is that key public health measures, masks, and now vaccinations, have become these very hot political issues. You know, um, which is at odds with the idea that in public health, you basically need to have universal enforcement. Yeah. Uh, one other uh, question I had, just going back to an earlier point about, you know, COVID in the, in the workplace and sort of occupational health and trying to, you know, keep people who, who you know, are not able to work remotely uh, safe is one thing. And this is really more public facing uh, as much as anything is you, know, you see a lot of businesses, particularly, um, you know, dentists and uh, estheticians and other places where, you know, that type of work is being performed where, I mean, I, I know myself and I'm sure everybody else, you know, a lot of times you'll see, uh, you know, yourself being required to fill out a form basically saying, hey, if I get COVID, it's not on us. You know, I'm essentially agreeing that if I come to this business that, uh, you know, I'm willing to take on the risk. What, what are the legal implications of agreements like that? Because you see these, I mean, everywhere I go now, they're kind of like these haphazard, like three sentence, just sign your life away. You know, if you get it, it's not our fault. Uh, things that you're seeing almost everywhere now, it seems that I go. I mean, what is, I, I guess like, you know, if let's say a case were to be brought on, on an agreement like that, like what are the types of, of issues that that could turn on? And again, I, and I know earlier we spoke about, you know, contract, breach of contract and, you know, contract being a better source of law than, than torts to kind of deal with that. So like, let's say we, the contract issue were tried, uh, what might happen? 
So, um, so Tom, since we are uh, in about two weeks, we're going to be addressing that question in our torts class. Leah knows the um, general broad contours of it, which is um, they're attempting to provide evidence for what's called express assumption of risk. You're right. By contract to waive your any claim for negligence. So it will be those agreements. And again, we have to assume all those other preconditions are met that somebody gets sick, that um, it's bad enough that's worth bringing a lawsuit. All the reasons why we probably aren't seeing a lot of lawsuits, um, but let's assume one comes, then it would turn on just pretty standard legal protocol. Was it um, clear? Was it expressed? Did it um, did it waive any claim of negligence? Because um, many times these kinds of agreements are designed to make it easier for the defendant to get summary judgment. You're you're and generally what they want to say is you are assuming the risk. Um, of our negligence in how we operate our restaurant or our aesthetics or our nail salon or the like. Um, and some places are not asking for them because I think they're just, they're probably either, they're not thinking of it or their insurer is saying, we just don't, these cases are not getting traction right now. Because if somebody's willing to go to a, a nail salon or aesthetics or a bar, chances are they're willing to go to a whole lot of other places. Um, and so they're exposing themselves out in the world and even with, um, without uh, um, an express contractual assumption of risk, a recognition that, that they are uh, their own conduct is, is going to defeat um, causation. So, uh, Dean, what's your sense? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. You know, um, you know, essentially, what courts need to decide is, you know, was this a voluntary agreement, or did this involve, you know, what is called a contract of adhesion? Um, so there are certain places, you know, rec for rec where you go for recreational, other voluntary reasons. And as you'll read, you know, in your tort textbook, however, that there are certain environments in which, you know, courts would agree it's a contract of adhesion. A, a classic example would be hospitals. You know, if you break your leg and you go to a hospital, you know, can you waive your right to sue in tort liability? And the answer, you know, is no. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, so I just had a few questions uh, left. One thing that, you know, I, I just added this thing is it just happened very recently. Uh, so President Biden uh, announced that, uh, you know, he's in essence instructing, ordering, there's been a variety of, of verbs that have been used to describe this, uh, the states by May 1st to make all uh, folks eligible for the vaccine. And so I, I know this is maybe more of a, a situation in constitutional law than, you know, uh, sort of other areas of the law. But uh, I'm just curious, you know, uh, you know you, you've seen, you know, from the Trump administration to, to Biden and just sort of the various levels of you know, the, the government and agencies that have kind of grappled with this uh, in terms of the vaccine rollout. And I, you know, was fortunate enough to just, I'm actually uh, on Tuesday getting my, my second vaccine. I know, uh, I think some of us here have, may have, may have gotten it already. Uh, but for, you know, most folks, it's still something that's, uh, you know, a, a ways off on the horizon. But um, I, I guess President Biden, you know, instructing states to make everyone eligible to get, I mean, this is something where you've got the, and, you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got the vaccine coming from Pfizer and Moderna and these other, you know, life sciences companies that goes to the federal government. The federal government distributes the vaccine to the states and they can only give them out, uh, you know, to the extent that they have available, uh, you know, vaccines to give. But the, the president basically telling the states, you're going to make everyone eligible by, by May 1st. Does the president have the authority to do that? Or are there like a abundance of vaccines? Then, you know, Professor Hashimoto, you might know more about this, but I don't know, are they that available that we can do that? Is that an actual legal thing that the president can do? Or I guess, what does that mean for folks? Yeah, I mean, this is an example again, where 
there has been a, a tension between federal authority and state authority. And so currently right now, you know, you have the federal government, you know, including the CDC, as well as, um, as well as through the president, sort of advising states on what they think, you know, what groups they think should be prioritized. And so there was a pretty good consensus between the federal government and among states that in the first wave of vaccinations, healthcare workers would be prioritized. Uh, but since then, there has been disagreements developing on, you know, what group should be prioritized. I mean, the latest controversy involves, of course, you know, elementary school teachers, uh, with some states prioritizing them, other states not. You know, it, it's been certainly an, an issue of contention in our state. Um, what professor, what President Biden is doing, you know, by making this federal declaration by saying, you know, on May 1, there's going to be enough vaccine provided through the distribution by the federal government that now the federal government, in, in terms of health and human services, is going to order states to move away from any kind of categorization based on priority. Now anyone, you know, should be able to to make an appointment and get vaccinated. He's doing that because, yes, it does appear that there is going to be sufficient available vaccine by the end of May, but there will be a legal controversy that will undoubtedly be litigated in terms of a suit against HHS by state, by some states, as to whether the federal government through executive order can require states in this regard, because this is really the first time that the president is stepping up. You know, in the prior administration, there was enormous deference to states and allowing this basically to be done through state orders. So this is the controversy and it will be interesting, you know, to see how that turns, how that turns out in terms of the litigation. I have to say that this case is likely to go all the way to the, to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think that there are good arguments by other side. It basically goes to, you know, you know, what what are what is within the intrinsic power of the federal government on an issue in which there is not a federal statute, and you're trying to do it basically through executive order. You know, I would suspect that the Supreme Court being composed as it is by conservatives, that this is going to be a very close, a very close call. Um, some of you may be, may be aware of the case that was decided last fall that involved um, a public health decree by California, a case called South Bay United Pentecostal Church v. Newsom. And that in that case, it involved a state order and whether a state order it was constitutional because it placed density limits on churches. And for the first time that there was a majority that struck down this public health order. Now that was a state order, but I think it did demonstrate the point that some justice that probably that a majority of justices are willing to look into this area of public health and make a decision that is contrary to the judgment of public health experts and base it on sort of traditional reasons. In that case, it was the right of religion. In this case, in this instance that we're talking about, we're talking about sort of federal state relationships. So it'll be very interesting to see how the Supreme Court decides this issue. 
Very interesting. Yeah, when I, when I saw you know the, the president's remarks the other night, uh, you know on, on that you know May first, everyone can be eligible. I was thinking I have to ask that because you know, can the president do that? You know, how, how might this be decided? I guess, um, you know, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I, I did have just two last questions, and you know, Lee, if you have uh, any other questions you'd like to ask, just as we uh, try to wrap up, um, I, I guess kind of looking to the future as you know the, the weather warms up, I guess not today, it's like 16 today, but we're, you know, we're getting there slowly, but surely, um, you know, and, and, you know, we turn our attention to spring and summer and, you know, we try to get, uh, you know, case numbers down and vaccinations up. And, you know, we, we try to kind of turn past this, uh, most troublesome chapter in, in, in our history. Um, you know, looking ahead, you know, people are already talking about, you know, uh, Bill Gates has been very, uh, you know, outspoken on the issue of uh, pandemics and, and public health, along with a lot of other, lot of other folks uh it's talking about you know you know could, could there be another pandemic and i'm just curious you know what type of you know legal or, or policy changes or, or you know changes within you know the, the, the federal government or you know sort of the healthcare system might we see you know going forward to try to pre- prevent a situation like this because i know you know a year ago right now uh you know march of 2020 it was just absolute chaos i mean i don't think a healthcare system the governments the like none of our uh, you know, the s- systems were, were prepared to deal with this. And so I'm just curious from a, a legal perspective, a policy perspective, a health, I mean, any perspective you want to look at this from, what kind of changes might be on the horizon to try to, you know, be, be more prepared in the future for, you know, God forbid, there's something like this. Well, this is Professor, definitely Professor Hashimoto's bullseye, but one can already see that um, the FEMA, federal policy, any rational federal policymaker is going to improve, learn from this. It's been an incredible experiment. It's been a lot of learning about what to do and what not to do. And so both the policymakers, the, the, um, the, the health, um, the world, they're all going to be looking and identifying if not best practice, better practices looking ahead um, because nobody wants to repeat this. And um, Professor Ashimoto, you probably have even more specifics there. You know, I, I, I think this, you know, I, I think this is, you know, the key issue. I, I will have to say at the outset that I'm not convinced that this pandemic is anywhere near over, that, you know, we're dealing with a highly infectious virus. It's very true that in past pandemics, they generally have come in a couple of waves and then disappeared for mysterious reasons. And that may occur here, although I think the more likely possibility is going to be that this coronavirus will become what we call endemic, that it, like, you know, other forms of the flu, may, it may stick around. It may be hard to stomp out. If you think about it, this is an international problem, and you're going to need to stomp it out internationally, not just within our country. Um, I suspect that this is so highly infectious that it will be endemic, very much like the flu, and it will not be surprising if every once in a while we will need to get vaccinations, if not on a yearly basis. And the legal issue will be, you know, at some point in time, will we want to make vaccinations mandatory, for example, um, in order to stomp out this pandemic? But in looking forward to, to future pandemics, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, there's some thinking in the public health community that, you know, with climate change, um, with the fact that the 20th century, with its relative lack of pandemics, which was really an anomaly, that if you go back 19th century and earlier, there were regular plagues, there were regular pandemics passing through. And so what we've begun to experience might be only the beginning in the 21st century. The big issue is over 
gov you know, government governance and structure. And we've touched on those issues in the sense of, you know, what is the role of the federal government? Understanding that the traditional public health infrastructure, which has eroded terribly, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century, was built around local control. So you have, for example, a Boston Public Health Commission. You have these, you have public health being administered locally through towns. That is the traditional structure. That structure has collapsed in this pandemic with the latest example being vaccinations in which basically we gave up on relying upon these very local structures. So it will be very interesting in terms of, you know, what is the future? I suspect a much larger federal role. There, there will be, you know, this also showed the importance of a state role, but, you know, the potential conflict between, you know, what is the role of the state vis-a-vis -vis the federal government? Very interesting. Uh, well, um, a lot of big stuff, a lot of big things to, to, to think about here. And, uh, you know, again, I think, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, through the end of this year, um, what happens. I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, we can have conversations like this uh, in person in the not too distant future. Um, well, I think that'll do it for us. Uh, Leah, Lea, do you have want the last word or do you think you think that's a wrap? I just have kind of one more point on the federal government. I think that um, I remember from my research in the early pandemic that there was in the Obama administration, a pandemic kind of preparedness, um, I don't wanna say unit, but maybe office after the Ebola um, epidemic. And I know that was shut down by the Trump administration. So I just hope that this uh, become something that we see as a necessity in the federal government, this preparedness going forward. And that is my last thought. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> Professors McMurrow, Professor Hashimoto, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a great discussion we've done. I think this might be our eighth episode since starting this last uh, last fall. This uh, this might be the best one yet. This was really insightful stuff. So thank you so much again uh, to both of you for coming on. Uh, I'm Tom Blakely. I'm your host here with my co-host, Leah Silverman. Again, those professors McMurrow and uh, Professor Hashimoto, BC Law, uh, talking to you about COVID-19. And uh, again, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you.